0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dr. Jorge Ver of Texas Tech University, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Peter Karasotis, who is the co-author of a wonderful book named Alou, My Baseball Journey, which is a biography of, of uh, Major League great Felipe Alu. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Jorge. Good, good.
0: Um, I wonder if I might begin this interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself and about how you came to uh, meet Felipe and begin the process of writing this book.
1: So I've been a career journalist, sports writer, and for most of my career, a columnist in the Gannett newspaper chain. And the paper that I worked out of was Florida Today along the east coast of Florida. And so every time during spring training, there would be uh, a little bit of a desire on my part to try to pick out anything that would be local for our area. And our area is known as the Space Coast of Florida. It's where Kennedy Space Center is, where I grew up. And uh, so when the Expos were still a franchise, they would come into town and play spring training games in Vieira, Florida and other teams too, and I'd look at their rosters, see if there's anything interesting, and I just happened to notice that Felipe Alou started his professional career in Cocoa, Florida, uh, which used to have a minor league team back in the 50s, and then it it had the Astros as a spring training team for many years. So before a spring training game when the Expos were up, uh, probably playing the Marlins at the time, who spring trained in Vieira, I, I introduced myself behind the the, back, the batting cage during batting practice. And I said, I don't know if you recall, Mr. Alou, that you started your baseball career in Cocoa, Florida. Well, he remembered everything. He remembered the street he lived on. I mean, we're going back to 1956. <laughs> he remembered the, the family that housed him, where he would fish. And uh, then he told me the story that uh, it wasn't really where he started his career. The Giants had sent him, the, the time the New York Giants had sent him to uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, and they wouldn't let him play because of Jim Crow laws and racism, and after only about nine at-bats, they put him on a bus to go from Louisiana through all the back roads at the time. There was no interstates. It took two days to get from Louisiana to Cocoa, Florida, and then he was telling me about how he really wanted to be a doctor, was in school to become a doctor uh felt like he should just stay on the bus and go all the way to miami go back home go back to the university and resume his studies but he had given his word got off on a park bench in coco florida in the middle of the night and uh started his baseball career and led the florida state league in batting that year so the next year when he was in town it was you know whatever the issue was in baseball i i kind of asked his opinion and I always felt that this guy had a great mind, great thinker, uh unbelievable memory there's only a couple of people I've run across that have a memory like him, so I always thought that he would make a good life story to co-author and collaborate with and eventually we did
0: well in, and let me let me ask you let me ask you this because I think this is a very interesting part of the story. Uh, a lot of major league ball players, or, or, or former major league ball players, have very interesting life stories, but they are, shall we say, hesitant to have to let someone in uh, to write their story. Um, how and why do you think you were able to connect with Felipe that enough to the point that he was
1: willing to to share his life story with you? So that's a great question because he did not want to and not. uh, So we had talked about it. it, it, What happened was back in 2011, Gannett laid off tens of thousands of people, company right across the country. I was one of those persons that got laid off. Mm -hmm. The next day after I got laid off, I was supposed to be in Miami when the San Francisco Giants were in town to play the Marlins. And Bruce Bochi is a local guy from this area and a friend of mine uh, just retired as the manager of the Giants. Mm-hmm. And and I was going to be going down when I still had a job to, to see Bruce and write a story and, you know, do, do some work. And I got laid off. So I figured I'm just going down anyways. Bruce had already heard what happened and he was upset for me. And we were sitting in his office and he said, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I said, Bruce, everybody in the newspaper industry now is in the same line. (laughs) I don't know. I didn't know where my spot was in line, but it was yesterday. And I got laid off. I've been thinking about doing other things. I thought about teaching at a a college level. I thought about other things. And I mentioned to him, I said, you know, I've always felt that Felipe Alou would make a good book to write. And he kind of looked at me like, And then he goes, you know, he's here today. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, he's here. He still works for the Giants as a special advisor, and he lives in South Florida. He says, do you want me to talk to him? I said, sure. About 15 minutes before the game, I get a text message from Bruce saying, I talked to Felipe, he's interested. Well, that lasted several years. He wasn't going to do it. He wasn't going to do it. He was going to do it. He wasn't going to do it. I ran into him once in San Francisco. We talked a little bit. Then he decided he didn't want to do it. And uh, Ernie Banks died. I wrote him a letter. I said, You know, this this is your generation. I said, You've got an important story to tell and not to be macabre, but we all go. And when you go, what you did and what you accomplish is going to go with you. Uh, but it never, he never, and then uh, after the Giants won the 2010, 2012 World Series, I think it was. I was talking to Bruce in the off-season, and he asked me, hey, how's that book going with Felipe? I said, it's not. I said, he, he says he's going to do it, and then he changes his mind. And I said, I've given up. I actually did two books in the interim. He goes, no, 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 don't give up. Let me, let me talk to him. A few days later, I got a phone call from Felipe, and he says, um, he says I'm, I'm going to do the book. He goes, I know I've been telling you I'm going to do it, and I changed my mind. I'm not going to change my mind. My children want me to do this. I'm, I'm going to do the book. He lives about three hours away from me in Florida, so I drove down, Jorge, and got to his house. We sat in his little home office. I didn't pull out a notepad. I didn't pull out a tape recorder. We just talked for hours because I knew I could read him enough to know that it was going to be important for us not to have a working relationship, but to have a relationship and uh so i that first time we just talked we just got to know each other and um and i listened to his stories i listened to his concerns and different things and uh and then the next time we got together we started on the project and then we kept moving and, forward
0: and and you know what A, let me also uh, uh Tell our audience uh, as to why uh, Felipe is not with us today. Felipe is actually overseas. I believe in uh, some sort of a um, some sort of a uh, a junket uh, working for a, I believe a uh, some charitable
1: organization. Is that is that correct? Yeah, he's over in France with uh, several other Dominican current and former players like Big Poppy and his son Moises, and uh, they're with UNESCO. And which is a cultural organization, and they're mm-hmm. kind of introducing or trying to get uh, the people in France interested and more interested in the game of baseball.
0: Well, and and having Dominican ballplayers uh, introduce the great American game of baseball is, a, I think, an excellent way to uh, to get people who are not necessarily familiar with baseball interested in the sport. Absolutely. Okay, okay. Well, let's switch gears now and let's talk a little bit about the actual content of the book. And Felipe talks about not really starting to play organized baseball until about the age of 14. Now, most Dominican kids are going to be are going to play baseball, but why does it take him so long to get into an organized version of the sport and how does he eventually come to the attention of, uh, the great, uh, scout for the, uh, for the Brook New York giants,
1: uh, Alex Pompez. So Felipe, uh, really didn't play any organized baseball. Um, they were very poor. They grew up in a 15 by 15 foot shack mm-hmm. and, uh, they knew the game of baseball, but nobody, nobody from the Dominican was playing in the major leagues, and there were no black players in the major leagues, so it was never a dream or even a thought that you could have a career playing major league baseball. Uh, Jackie Robinson eventually broke the color barrier, and the Dodgers came to uh, Santo Domingo to uh, play during spring training, and he actually saw Jackie Robinson as a boy play baseball, mostly what they were doing was playing games as kids and some of it was baseball and his father had carpentry skills was a carpenter he would fashion a, a rudimentary piece of wood into a bat and uh, they would play on a on a hard scrabble field that had trees on it he cut down a, a coconut tree to kind of clear up some of the land and <laughs> and got in trouble for that and so he um, he and his brothers and their friends, they would play with little pieces of fruit, maybe a, a an unripe small coconut or citrus and different things like that. Sometimes he and his brother Matty would, would go to where there was organized baseball being played and they would uh, search in the outfield beyond the, the fence in the weeds and they'd find a, a, a ball that nobody else had been able to find and they would use that for a while. And it wasn't until he... You know, the oldest of six, very poor, he had an uncle who worked in Rafael Trujillo's military, and dictators keep their military happy, and so the uncle had a little bit of money, and Felipe, extremely smart, intelligent, he wanted to be a, a doctor, he wanted to be a pediatrician, work with children, and was going to the University of Santo Domingo, already taking some pre-med type courses, and... Um, he caught the attention of the track and field coach one day when he was walking by and there was a javelin laying on the ground and, uh, they asked him to throw it back and he threw it back and it, it sailed over all of them. And the coach came over and said, be interested in you being on the track and field team. And he became a javelin thrower and a, and a, and a sprinter. And he, he broke the javelin record for the country that stood for decades decades. And he made the Pan Am games as a track and field athlete in 55, 1955. And it was in Mexico City. And one of the players on the Dominican baseball team was sent home for insubordination. So they came to Felipe and they said, you know, we, we need you more for, on the baseball team than track and field. This is, this is more important. And so um, he led the baseball team to the gold medal and they, and they beat the um, uh, United States team and, and he caught people's attention. So, uh, so from there, there was the scout, I believe it was Rabbit Martinez, who came to the home, Horatio Rabbit Martinez, and said uh, to his family, to his parents, I want to sign your son to a pro contract for 200 pesos. And it was like, no, 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 Felipe's going to become a doctor. And um, so Rabbit Martinez came back a couple of weeks later and uh, tried to appeal to the parents, brought some of his baseball teammates and said, your son has talent, I think he can make it, I want to sign him for 200 pesos. No, 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 no. So Felipe said that his father was struggling to put food on the table for his younger bro- younger brothers and sisters and owed the grocer exactly 200 pesos for food. And so he said I signed that po- pro contract so my family could eat that's that's when he got sent to Louisiana. They wouldn't let him play then when they were busing him to Coco, he thought about just going back home but he said I I, I had given my word to that scout and my word also affected my family, obviously and my country. <laughs> So I got off the bus in Cocoa, Florida. That was 1956. Led the Florida State League, as I mentioned, in, in hitting. Two years later, this guy that never really played organized baseball is in the outfield with Willie Mays. It's an incredible story.
0: Let's let's back up just a little bit, if if I may, because you know you you you've you've talked about Felipe experiencing uh, Jim Crow. In in Louisiana, can you maybe give us one or two stories? You know what was it like for him in Louisiana? And I mean, <clears throat> Florida's obviously also was also a segregate uh, was also a segregated society. Why were things different in Coco than in Lake Charles?
1: So when he got to Louisiana, um, there was a white family that housed him, and he said he had to stay beneath the window of the car whenever they were transporting him to the baseball field or not. And he said, you know, obviously growing up, uh, he had heard about racism, was aware that it existed, saw Jackie Robinson playing in in, in Santa Domingo and, and knew the reason why, because a black man was playing baseball and there was racism going on in this country. He said, I knew racism existed, he said, but I never had experienced it. He said, my mother, is, my mother," he said, was white. If you, if you Google the family, you'll see his mother was white and his father black. And, you know, people made a big deal in the mid-90s when Derek Jeter became this interracial player in Major League Baseball with a white mother and a black father. Uh, Felipe was an interracial ball player in, in Major League Baseball in 1958. So he said, you know, when well, then I come to this country, they passed a law in Louisiana that forbade Black people to be in the same workplace as white people, and he's hearing the N word, and he's being called a monkey, and he's not being allowed to eat, and you know all the typical things that were going on in the South. He was experiencing the epithets and the and the segregation at uh, places to eat or go to the bathroom, but the big issue was they had passed a law that he could not and a black person could not work in the same work environment as a white person. They actually passed the law. So once the Giants realized that he wasn't going to be able to play in, in Louisiana, uh, that's when they sent him to Coco. Was it much different in Florida other than they were allowing, you know, it's, it's 10 years down the road from, from, uh, from Jackie breaking the color barrier. So, right. so, you know, the, the minor leagues are integrating as the major leagues are, and so, you know, it, it was still on the road, staying in separate hotels or staying in the black section of town or, you know, the, 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 the team would eat at a restaurant and they would go in and be able to eat. But when the, they would have to bring food out for the black players who were sitting in the car, uh, you know, there was an incident in South Florida where a waitress brought them the food out to the car and the owner of the restaurant came out and he was furious. And Felipe, they were parked in the parking lot of the restaurant, and he wanted them to leave and go across the street. And Felipe wouldn't. And uh, they called the police. You know, so there was a lot of things happening uh, throughout Florida and obviously in Louisiana where he could not, you know, he could not even play baseball there. At least he could play in Florida, but he was subjected to all the the ugliness of racism at that time. Okay, okay.
0: Now... Felipe is also a, a very religious man, and he talks in, in, in the book. Uh, he talks about his religious conversion. Um, tell us a little bit about his religious conversion and why his Christianity is so significant to was so significant to his life back then, and so significant to his life now.
1: So he grew up Catholic as probably most of the Dominican is and back then the Catholic church forbade uh having a bible in the house which was not unusual uh, going back centuries in the catholic church and it still existed when he was growing up. So uh and and not really I mean what he saw from his mother and father was more superstition. <laughs> you know, Mm -hmm. the idols and the images and, you know, uh, hiding the money under a statue of Virgin Mary or something like that. Uh, So he really didn't learn what the Bible's message was. He learned maybe Catholic doctrines or, you know, the superstitions that are attached to it. And when he signed his pro-contract and he was leaving to come to the United States, a friend of his as a gift gave him a Bible. And he didn't know what to do. And he hid it in his luggage because he didn't want his mother to see it that, you know, they were forbidden from having a Bible. And and he's got this Bible now and he was hiding it. And when he got to America, he started to read it. And what he read impacted him. And when he was home during the off season, he hid the Bible, (laughs) but he kept reading it. And then he fell in with some various players. I think one of them was Lindy McDaniel and some others that uh, had you know, a, a Christian faith. And in conversing with them and learning more, he dedicated and, and his life uh, to Jesus and, and was baptized. And then from that point on, he was getting involved in d- various types of ministries. Uh, he would go into prisons in South America uh, there was an organization that would take testimonials and testimonial cards into prisons, and so he got very active in that. Actually ran into one of the more racist managers of the time that became the manager of the San Francisco Giants, Alvin Dark. Uh, he was asked one night to speak at, a, I think it was a Baptist church, uh, about an hour outside of San Francisco, and he gave uh, his testimony and talked to the congregation, and then afterward he saw that Alvin dark was there. So he, you know, he, Alvin, he said would take them to church during spring training, different things like that. But he butted heads with Alvin dark because of, you know, Alvin's, uh, some of the covert and overt racism that was coming out of him, which, which he, which was documented in the New York Newsday, Some of the comments he made and different things yeah. later reconciled with Alvin dark, uh, before Alvin died, he apologized to Felipe and a lot of the other players and kind of saw the light, uh, you know, religiously and as a human being. Uh, what what Can
0: you give us a couple of examples of um, some of the issues, some of the problems? You know, I mean, when, when you think about it, well, you know, Lake Charles, Louisiana, Cocoa, Florida, those are small towns. Those are towns in the south. Uh, you you expect to have you know the uh, some of these issues in, in the 1950s, but now we're talking about making it to the he's made it to the major leagues. He's playing with the with the San Francisco Giants. Alvin Dark is his manager. What are some of the things that Alvin Dark was did in in, in regards to how he related to
1: African American or Latino ballplayers on on the major league roster? And it's interesting that you said it that way, because there was a dual racism going on. It was Mm -hmm. not just white America. It was it was black America as well. So you experienced the racism from white America, but also from black America, too, because you could go into the black communities. You could go get your haircut. You could go get a meal. You could. But don't be dating our women. You know, they don't cross that line so the black America considered them a lower class of citizen as well and discriminated against them also. The interesting thing about Alvin Dark is when he became manager of, of the Giants Felipe when he was in Lake Charles Louisiana as a you know trying to make it as a minor league player, the town hero who was a major league player at the time a shortstop, that his name he kept hearing all the time because everybody was so proud of this major league ball player from Lake Charles, Louisiana, Alvin Dark. <laughs> so so Alvin becomes the manager of the Giants, and he's going to give Alvin a fair shake right out of the gate. First spring training, he gathers all the Latinos together and tells them they're not allowed to speak Spanish to each other. And so what do you mean we're not allowed to speak Spanish? And Felipe's like, that's my brother Maddie over there. I can't talk to my own brother in our native tongue. What do I tell my parents back home? You know, we 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 look at we put these guys on a pedestal sometimes, but we forget that they were young guys or teenagers, and their parents were everything. And he's he was afraid to tell his parents that he's in a work environment where he can't speak Spanish to his own brother. Uh, so there were things like that. There was an unspoken quota system. He got sent down to the miners when I think they brought up uh, Willie McCovey or they brought up another black player. And so they sent him down to the minors because they didn't want too many blacks and Latinos on the team. And, and he rebelled and he left, he left the team, the giants and went back to the Dominican Republic and said, I'm quitting baseball. I don't deserve to be sent down. I know what's going on here. I'm being sent down because we're bringing up another black player from the minor leagues. And you don't want too many of them on the field, too many of us on the field, uh, because you're, you're afraid of the message that it's going to send to your fan base. And they had, they had to bring them back and, 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 and reinstate them on the Major League team. And then around the country, they still had to stay. Maybe they could stay at the same hotel, but uh, there were stories where they had to stay on a different floor. They weren't allowed to be on the same floor as the other white guests. Still ran into situations where they couldn't eat in restaurants. He and Orlando Cepeda once had gotten new suits uh, from a nice tailor, and I think they were in Chicago now. Road trip. They went to a restaurant. Uh, you, you, uh, you can't come in here. Uh, what do you, what do you mean we can't come in here? Uh, we don't serve colored people. And Orlando Cepeda says that's okay. We don't eat colored people. And. Uh, and, and the maitre d' saying, uh, no, 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 uh, are you looking for a job? Is that why you're here? Uh, no, we're not looking for a job. Oh, if you're looking for a job, they need dishwashers at the restaurant down the street. Uh, you know, the stories can go on and on. And and he was, he he's fair about it because, uh, you know, there are instances where where people were trying to impose racism into a situation, and he would say, no, you know, this is not racism. I'm not ready for the next step. And there's white managers that are better than me in the minor leagues that haven't gotten their chance. So he was in tune to it, but he wasn't obsessed with it. Mm. And he had a, he had a sense of balance of, you know, I'm not entitled. And just because maybe I don't get a job or, or I'm not playing every day, it's not necessarily because of my skin color, but when it did happen,
0: Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. And that, I think, leads us into yet another important point that Felipe brought up in regards to Latinos in the major leagues. Uh, You talk about Felipe bringing up or or discussing something that he called the Bill of Rights for Latino ballplayers in the major
1: leagues. Tell us a little bit about that. So there was a writer still, uh, he's in his mid-90s now, Arnold Haino, who worked for Sport Magazine. Felipe had fallen in with with um, R- Roberto Clemente, and they became very close friends, almost like brothers. And uh, And they would talk about... Uh, the disparity of how they were treated versus the other players on the team, both white and black. And they, uh, you know, th- th- they were outspoken about it. And so Arnold Hano got with Felipe and he did a first person article in Sport Magazine at the time about what Latino players have to keep in mind. There's a different set of standards, a different Set of rules for for them, and how um, the American culture doesn't really understand their culture. You know things like not even just cultural things. It was, you know, they would they would quote Clemente and other players verbatim, right? Their, phonetically, yeah, yeah, in their in their broken English. Never mind trying to learn their language, and uh, no, you're going to ask them to know your language, and then. And then you're going to make fun of them in the way that you quote them, um, just different things. You know, Latino players are, are, you know, different personality, different mindset. A little, you know, they smile. Game's over. You know, uh, so there was a stigma attached to them that they didn't hustle or they didn't care. Right. Uh, there was one time when Felipe uh, struck out in a key situation, and the reporters asked Alvin Dark about him afterwards, and Alvin Dark was maligning his hustle. And um, and I think it was Cepeda who said, I guess after you strike out in a key situation, you're supposed to run back into the dugout and slide. Yeah. <laughs> you know, So he wrote this bill of rights for Sport Magazine, which is really way ahead of its time. I mean, you can read it even now and nod your head knowingly. Well, when he wrote that first person article, that was really the last straw with the Giants and they uh traded him a couple of months later uh to the then Milwaukee Braves. Okay. But there were and, a lot of things in there that were way ahead of their time about what the Latino players were going through.
0: And and Peter, one of the things I that that also ties in with all of this, you know, besides the language and the supposed lack of hustle and and so on and so forth, is this idea that Latinos were not sufficiently uh, uh smart enough to be able to um to manage uh really at, at at any levels. And a little later on in the book uh Felipe talks about how Ralph Hauck approaches him and be, and he's really the first person to begin to to plant the idea in Felipe's mind that hey you know you you've got what it takes you might be able to manage
1: tell us a little bit about that yeah so he's he's clearly a leader uh he's i mean you can learn leadership skills but uh, most great leaders are born with leadership skills from boyhood on a lot of these stories is him as a leader and uh in in major league baseball he was somewhat of a leader in in the clubhouse, especially among the other Latino players. They all gravitated to him. They all looked up to him. He's not thinking that he's got a future as a manager because, once again, as a kid, how am I going to play Major League Baseball? There's no Dominicans. There's not even any black players. Mm -hmm. Now he's a player. Be a manager? There's no black managers, much less Latino managers in Major League Baseball in in the 60s. So late in his career, things are starting to wind down. He's with the Yankees, and Ralph Houk, you know, notices uh, as the manager of the Yankees at the time, notices a lot of the qualities that we later see in Felipe as a, as a manager, and as a leader, and uh, and mentions to him that he feels like Felipe's got a future in baseball as a manager. <laughs> uh, so Houk actually was thinking at the time when Felipe retired to kind of maybe bring him on as a coach. And, uh, and then Steinbrenner got the Yankees and, and, and how had enough of Steinbrenner and that never happened. So when his career ended uh, with the Expos, uh, he still did not think that there was any kind of future as a manager. Uh, He went back home. He got into broadcasting a little bit. There's a, tragic accident that's that's mentioned in the book. His oldest son was killed in a swimming pool accident. He kind of lost his way for a little bit. And then to kind of pull out of that, he felt like, I need to return to baseball. And then that was when he started managing in the minor leagues, in the Expos organization. And pretty much his career was spent in the minor leagues before he got a chance to manage at about 57 years old. Mm-hmm. And, and what,
0: uh, what year was what year was that that he that he finally got the job with the with the expos at, at the major league level?
1: Early early nineties. Um, I'm going by memory now because we know the '94 season uh, was when the strike happened and the season got wiped out. Uh, so he he was let's see, 57 years old. So he was born in 35. We would make it 1992. And um, you know there. <laughs> There's so many layers and so many facets to this autobiography that I co-authored with with Felipe, uh, and we're touching on a lot of different things. One of the things that has struck me is Joe Torre, who was his roommate in, with the Atlanta Braves, Joe Torrey became a manager at 37 years old with the Mets. Felipe did not get his shot until he was 57. If you look at... Joe Torrey's playing career and Felipe's playing career, numbers are very similar. Torrey a little bit better, but similar statistics. If you had allowed Felipe, and, and let's be honest about it, why didn't he get a managing job in the major league level at age 37? Because nobody, uh, other than maybe uh, uh, Frank Robinson, and then you know nobody from Latin America was getting anything, much less a black person in, as a major league skipper. If he had been allowed to manage at 37 and been managing for two decades earlier in the major league level, he would have he would be in the top five in career wins, career games managed. If that 94 season had not been wiped out, the Expos right. had the best team in baseball, the best record in baseball, and they were streaking, had they won that World Series they may have been the Yankees of the latter part of the 90s, winning two, three, four world championships. He'd be in the Hall of Fame right now. My contention right now, and I've had discussions with Tony La Russa and some other people are, if we're going to retroactively look back at what happened with racism to the Jackie Robinsons and the Satchel Pages and, and the Buck O'Neils and the different ones that did not get a chance because of their skin color, Felipe did not get a chance because of being black and Latino for at least two decades. If you want to compare him with Joe Torre, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. And there's a growing sentiment that he should be in the Hall of Fame. Not only the first born and raised Dominican to leave that country and become a major league player, to play in the World Series, and the first Dominican to become a major league manager. Gary Thorne, the Orioles announcer, calls this book the first time we've gotten the Jackie Robinson story from a Latino perspective.
0: Very, that's, that's a, I think that's a very good way to, 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 uh, to summarize the book. Now, let me, let me ask you this then, because he's been, Felipe's been successful. He's been managing at the major league level with the Expos. Eventually, he moves on to manage the, the Giants. And now we move on to what we th- would think is a is a better time period as far as the way that the race uh, issue is dealt with. <coughs> Excuse me. And in August of 2005, he gets a shock in regards to how a San Francisco area broadcaster deals with him or looks at him – at his intellectual capability
1: and his capabilities as a manager. Tell us a little bit about that. So the, the team was struggling, and talk radio is really, you know, uh, provocative and, and, in my opinion, can be very toxic. And there was a guy on KNBR who singled out Felipe and the Latino players on the Giants, for the reason why the team was struggling. And the same old narratives that never seem to go away. They're undisciplined, they're swinging at slop, blah, blah, you know, all the different things. Felipe went ballistic. And his feeling was I had to keep my mouth shut all those years with a lot of injustices and a lot of things that were being said. I knew I didn't have a voice. But now, as the manager of the San Francisco Giants, to hear this type of prejudice and these old narratives that, that keep getting fed into the system as if they're fact, he spoke out. And I think he was even on Nightline at the time. And the the broadcaster for KNBR was eventually fired and then rehired, and, and he didn't want that to happen. But the guy came in and apologized to Felipe and he said don't apologize to me you need to go to all the lockers in that clubhouse and apologize to every Latino player for what you just said because those guys are upset and uh no, he wasn't going to do that and he didn't do it but it became a big issue in San Francisco well, some people said Felipe overreacted you need to put yourself in his shoes you, you know, he endured all of this in this country to forge a name for himself, for his family name, and forge a path for his fellow countrymen. <laughs> okay. All of the Dominicans that came in behind him, he felt an obligation. That's why it's, you know, Jackie Robinson the same way. Uh, you know, I got to swallow things for for the people coming behind me. So Felipe endures all of this. And there's there's a dramatic story in the book of when Trujillo is assassinated and it throws the country into turmoil. And one of the reasons why he didn't want to write this book is this particular story. There was a fourth and is a fourth Alu brother, Juan Alu, the youngest of the four, was a barrel-chested, power-hitting, corner infielder, that could hit for power but could hit for average like Maddie, that was already on the radar to be signed. And his parents kind of wanted him, Juan, to to go to school and be the one that actually got an education, so to speak. And uh Trujillo's assassinated and Juan as a young college student gets caught up in the revolutions going on. And he gets detained once by the US soldiers, but then detained again or, you know, he gets detained by the U.S. soldiers and then he gets detained again by the Dominican forces and they want to see all the IDs. And when they saw his ID, they asked him, are you related to the Alu brothers? And Juan says, they are my brothers. And they took him to his parents and said, get him off the island. And they got Juan off the island and sent him to Puerto Rico where he became a civil engineer. The point being is, His brother, he felt bad because those other young men that were captured were likely executed. And he felt bad that if we tell this story in the book, it's going to sound like we felt we were better than those other young men. He said, we were no better. It's just that me, Maddie, and, and Jesus were now major league players, and there was a source of country pride, and they weren't going to kill Juan because of that. Doesn't mean we were better than those other young men. So that was one of the narratives going on in the Dominican. The other narrative was the United States wanted to control who was going to take power in the Dominican. The Dominicans wanted a, a, a professor, an intellectual named Juan Bosch, who was a socialist, who was in exile. They brought him back after Trujillo's assassination. They wanted, to, uh, wanted him to be their president. The United States didn't want him. Because socialism, one step away from communism, the Cuban missile crisis had already occurred. They didn't want another country in the Dominic, in the uh, Caribbean to fall. So Lyndon Johnson sent tens of thousands of troops to occupy the Dominican Republic, to occupy the island. They took over his family's house and set a command post up on the second, on the roof. It was a two story home. Uh, they said you know with snipers and everything and and his father and his family had a flea and Juan stayed in the house just to kind of protect it and felipe said i'm home i've played in the world series i've been an all-star i've been a major league player now for 5 years i'm waiting for a friend in my neighborhood on a street and an american jeep comes up behind me and some kid gets out of the jeep kid you know like an 18 year old soldier that looks like he's 15 and he's got a rifle and he's asking me or not asking me, he's telling me to get off the street and felipe says why do i have to get off this street it's this my neighborhood it's a military road now not not, not available for civilians felipe goes this, this is my neighborhood this is and the guy points the rifle at felipe and threatens to take him to a notorious prison for dissidents if he doesn't get off the street And Felipe says, I'm listening to this punk kid in my country telling me to get off a street in my neighborhood, pointing a rifle at me, and he says, and I pick up the accent. And it's a very distinct accent. It's the same accent I heard in Louisiana when I was told in that country I couldn't play baseball because of my skin color. (laughs) Now that same accent is in my country, telling me to get off the street in my neighborhood. So there were a lot of things that he swallowed through the years. He didn't tell me this story, but I found out later there was one game after all of this was happening where the U.S. occupied the Dominican that he didn't go out for the the national anthem. Well, with the climate with Colin Kaepernick and everything else, he didn't even tell me that story because I know he didn't want it in the book. But I found out later he refused to come out for the national anthem as a you know you're gonna you're gonna occupy my island with with U.S. troops and try to dic- try to dictate, no pun intended, who the next dictator is going to be. So when he had a voice, he used that voice, and that was that incident that you were talking about in San Francisco.
0: Let's uh, we're we're coming to the end, and and before we do, I, I want to just bring up. Uh, you know something a little a little bit more lighthearted, I, I, I guess, since we've been discussing some 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 fairly heavy topics here. One of the things that Felipe talks about at the towards the end of the book is <clears throat> he has I don't I don't know if I would sit would call it a dislike or a distrust a mistrust for of uh, of uh, sabermetrics and and managing by sabermetrics um why does he why does he feel the way that that way given the direction that baseball especially major league baseball has gone in the last uh, you know decade or so where everything is calculated everything is based on uh, well, we're going to bring up this hitter. We need to bring in this relief pitcher because this guy uh, hits be- uh, pitches better against this particular batter. Why does he not feel comfortable or like that particular arrangement?
1: One of the things that was kind of interesting, what he says is Sabermetrics has always been around in baseball, he said. Why did we bat a guy fourth? Why did we bat him third? Why did we bat him first? We had statistics. They've always been there. A high average guy, you know, that is a base dealer. We batted him first. Power hitter four. You know, he says people today act like we're dinosaurs. We've always used statistics to decide what we're going to do. And he's not adverse to more statistics. What, What he gets frustrated with is not allowing a player to develop two things I should say he gets frustrated with, not allowing a player to develop. He said that the 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 analytics are going into the minor leagues and it's getting to the point where how does he do on a cloudy day with the wind blowing over 10 miles an hour? He is still developing as a ball player. So you're establishing data on somebody who's learning their craft. So he feels like there is an instruction that's missing in minor league baseball, and it's all becoming uh, analytics and statistics and those types of things rather than teaching and instructing. Then when it gets to the major league level, uh, guys that I talked to who covered him as a manager, players who played for him, his his memory is absolutely phenomenal. He can go back 30 years and tell me something or tell me, you know, In 1965, you know, it'll be an off-the-cuff conversation. It's not like he knew we were going to talk. It's just we're talking about innings, you know, pitchers' pitchers, inning counts and all that. He goes, you know, in 1965, you know, Juan Marichal threw 300, and then you go and look at baseballreference.com, and he's exactly right. So he's got that kind of memory. Guys that were around him when he was managing would say, He'd come up to me and and say, "Hey, you know uh, that reliever out there? You know when we when we faced the Reds three months ago, there was a there was a two one count, and he threw threw you a backdoor slider. You know, you want might want to remember." And and the guy's like, "I don't even remember facing that pitcher," and he remembers the sequence of pitches during the at bat. So he was breaking down, and he was sabermetricing in his head <laughs> to point a, a word. He was doing all of that. He was he was analyzing and digesting information. What frustrates him and guys like Bruce Bochy and Tony Larusa, uh, we all had lunch uh, in um, in Boston back in September. In Larusa and, La and Bochy and Felipe, uh, what they were talking about is the analytics are not going to tell you that I know that guy is having marital problems. Or I know that that guy is a little dinged up today. Or I know that that guy X, Y, Z. Or I've seen him face this kind of pitcher before. He would bat left-handed batters against left-handed pitchers sometimes simply because he saw something. So he feels like, and, and, and I think the pendulum is swinging back in that direction, that you got to take in the human element. I know that that guy, I know what the numbers say, but I know that the stage is so big right now that I trust this guy on this stage rather than that guy. I don't care what the numbers say. This guy's heartbeat slows down (laughs) in big moments, and maybe his numbers are not as good, but his heart is much bigger. Those things you cannot quantify. They don't quantify uh, uh, how competitive somebody is. People, you know, some ball players are Pete Rose competitive, and they'll do anything to score. And some guys are not as competitive. Some guys shrink back in the big moment. You can't quantify everything. You've got to let the manager see what his eyes see, what his gut feels, and what he knows is going on behind the scenes.
0: And 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 I would I would add that just like you have to let ball players develop. And face different situations. You also have to allow managerial talent to develop and and to begin the process of thinking things through. And and you know, Felipe Felipe talks a lot about the the gut instinct. And I guess I guess that's what you're referring to here. Ultimately, you can't. You have to trust your gut as a manager or as a ball player sometimes. And it that doesn't necessarily mean that you will follow. Exactly what the statistical information tells you to do.
1: Yeah, and and you know you look at Dave Roberts with the Los Angeles Dodgers and deer in the headlights (laughs) in the World Series and playoffs. You're looking at him and he's trying to assimilate all the numbers rather than okay, I've got a working knowledge of the numbers. The game is happening in front of me. Let me adjust to the game. Let me not try to force feed analytics into this situation and then you look at a guy like bochi and 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 when we had lunch bochi was like i want the information i'm looking at the information that that all of that is helpful but when it's when i'm in that dugout there are things going on that that i know that this is the better decision or at least the decision that i want to make and what's funny is you know tony La Russa said you know what i want I want to be able to get that guy sitting up with his computer, the Harvard-Yale graduate that's spitting out all of this and telling me that I need to do this, this, and this, and this situation. I want that guy in the post-game news conference with all the media there, and I want him to answer their questions because they're telling me what to do and the GM is telling me what to do based on all of this, and then they're invisible when their ideas don't work or I plugged and played what they told me to do at Sabermetrics and we just lost, they're nowhere to be found to answer questions. Now I'm answering the questions. So if you want, if you want me to implement this, then get your butt down here and be accountable to answer the questions as well.
0: Well, Peter, let me, let me just, I guess the, the, a good way to wrap this up. And, and I mean, there, there's so much more, as you said, that there, there, there's so many layers to this book. Is there a specific topic that we haven't talked about, that you you want to broach, that you want to touch upon before before we sign off.
1: I, the one thing uh, some people have been scared away because they feel like it's it's all about the racism and prejudice. It certainly is not. It is an inspiring story of somebody who grew up hand to mouth in a fifteen by fifteen foot shack worked in rock mines as a young man had a dream of becoming a medical doctor uh, because of the poverty and wanting to help people uh, but signed so that he could help his family overcame all the racism and prejudice because he felt like his name his family name and his country's reputation was involved Uh, that for somebody this book is a is is history of our country, of the Dominican country, and this great game of baseball through the eyes of a giant, of a man, uh, who's got a brilliant mind and, a, and an engaging, multifaceted personality. And that's the message I would like to get across with this book. So many people have told me, I picked it up and started reading it and felt like I only got a half hour, I wanna read a chapter. And before they knew it, they were five chapters into the book. It's it's And it's not me. <laughs> I, I knew I had gold nuggets going in. I struck a gold mine with this man.
0: Well, Peter, uh, I I have to tell you, I I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book, and and you you have a great project. This is this is an absolutely wonderful book. Anyone who is interested in the history of baseball in general, but specifically how the Latino experience in baseball, both at the major league level and at the minor league level compares or, or the, 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 the aspect of, of that group's life in participating in the great game of baseball should, should pick up this book. Um, once again, the name of the book is Alou, my baseball journey by Felipe Alou and Peter Karasotis. It was published in 2018 by the university of Nebraska press. Uh, Peter, I want to thank you for taking time to to visit with me today. Uh, I know we've taken a, a, a lot of your time, but I, I want to thank you. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, we can touch base and maybe uh, discuss another book somewhere down the line.
1: Absolutely. And this is coming out in paperback in the spring. Good. Well, thank, thank you so much. Thank you. I, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your interest in this. All right.